what is this? This is a group called Redbone. What's the name of the song? They're a uh, Native American rock group performing We Are All Wounded at Wounded Knee. That's great. Redbone sounds familiar to me. That's that's really great. Now I know what I'm doing this weekend. I'll be looking up Redbone music. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and there's an end of the world that you may not have considered. I know I hadn't thought about it. And that's the an end of the world because we thought all we had to do was be pals, be friends, that we all needed to just get along to stop the end of the world as we know it. In fact, if we want to end our planet-threatening systems of cruelty and violence, we're going to have to do it with people who, frankly... We don't like it all. As political theorist Jody Dean pointed out on the show back in 2019, more than anything, we need to be comrades more than we need to be friends or even allies. We, as our guest today argues, cannot limit a movement to a small clique of people we like hanging out with. If we don't work hand-in-hand with those we'd rather not hold hands with, there's not going to be much of a movement at all. Hell, the wealthy don't like each other, but as our guest points out, that doesn't stop them from working in coordination to protect their own interests. In a few minutes, we are going to have the wonderful honor of speaking with award-winning Menominee organizer and writer Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort Is the Whole World Worth? Movement building requires a culture of listening, not mastery of the right language. The essay was co-authored by a past guest here on This Is Hell, Mariam Kaba, and is featured in the new Boston Review issue on solidarity. It's also It also appears in uh, the book that Kelly has co-authored with Mariam, titled, Let This Radicalize You, Organizing in the Revolution of Reciprocal Care. Other essays in On Solidarity, the Boston Review issue, Include past guests like Reverend William J. Barber II, Jody Dean, Astra Taylor, Reverend Liz Theo Harris, and Gayotura Bahadur. Kelly is the host of Truthout's podcast, Movement Memos, and a con- contributing writer at Truthout. Find out more about Movement Memos at Kelly's website, kellyhayes.org. Kelly is also a direct action trainer and co founder of the Direct Action Collective. Lifted Voices, which you can find more about at liftedvoices.org. She was honored for her her organizing and education work in 2014 with the Women to Celebrate Award and in 2018 with the Chicago Freedom School's Champions of Justice Award. Follow her on Twitter at Ms. Kelly M, as in Mary, Hayes. Support Kelly's work on Patreon at Patreon. 
Facebook.com Kelly Hayes. Producing is, to my surprise, Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? It's been a while. Good morning, sir. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, so I, I have some exciting news. Excellent. The city of yesterday, the city of Chicago came and replaced my lead water line. No kidding. For free. Holy cow, we've been waiting for that in this neighborhood for a really long time. Well, you you have what I did, I you, there's a program on the website, the city's website, you can go and you can apply for this, and that's what I did. And then after a little bit of, you know, you have a big form to fill out and some, you know, they have come and test your water and stuff and right. and then uh, you get approved or not and they approve me. You also have to qualify for uh, uh, not making so much money that it's, you know, if you don't make so much money, then it's free. Okay. If you make, you know, more than some amount, then you have to... So is it free uh, for you? It was because I work in the arts. No, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> you don't make that much money. Uh, so if you, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but let's say you live in an apartment building. You didn't own the property. Yeah, Could you the, still apply? I don't know. I think the the owners probably do. The owners probably need to apply, but... And then the owners know. may not because being a landlord. Yeah, yeah I don't know how that works. Yeah. But, wow, that's it was fantastic, amazing. They, they did it all in one day. It was amazing. No kidding. Yeah. They, I thought that that would be like a weeks-long no, project. They, they come out, they dig a big hole out in the street, and they have like a horizontal boring machine that bores all the way underneath your property into the into your basement and they don't they don't mess they don't touch your your actual building your property at all you don't they don't have to dig up your yard or anything it's amazing wow wow now i want to just sit out and watch them do it that sounds really and when they tore up the street uh did you see any of the history of your neighborhood underneath it? yeah no it wasn't that bad because they had they had replaced the main water lines about in like 2005 or 7 or something so you know it was pretty clean down there yeah because i remember back in the 90s there was some huge construction on clark street and Andersonville and you could see the old uh, cobblestone you could see the old brick you could see the old wood roads yeah, yeah I'm not on a main street oh so that's true yeah. and you're a little bit farther out on the west side so well great to hear from you sir and congratulations now I want to get that done too guess what I'm going in for yet another surgery and it is completely unrelated to the. Actually, it's seven. I see you're in the way, uh, on the way to being mummified there. Too. I am. I am. That's what we're working on right now. You're wrapped around your. Uh, you should see the people working on my pyramid. Uh, so uh, it is completely unrelated to the. I don't know seven other operations I've had in the last year and a half, not including a couple of other ailments like COVID. A broken toe. Despite my childhood orthodontist saying that he had pulled all of my wisdom teeth, it appears that jerk was a liar. My new dentist has discovered that I have an impacted wisdom tooth which needs to be extracted or it will cause decay in the tooth next to it. I know this is going to be very painful, so I asked if he was going to put me under. He told me that he cannot do that. He's not certified to do so, but he can give me nitrous oxide, laughing gas, which he says will help with the pain. However, being someone who has generally self-prescribed the majority of drugs I've taken in my life, I am familiar with nitrous and know that the effect is sort of like tripping, but for only a short period of time, maybe a minute or so. Although when you are on nitrous, it feels like forever and you're not really in the best condition to do things like time yourself or <laughs> read a watch for that matter. So the worst part about this extraction will be the three or four days of pain and uh, liquid diet, I am told, will follow. So stay tuned because I'm likely going to have to miss some time again from the show while I 
laugh myself all the way to Painesville. But more important than yet another medical procedure that is not covered by my lame insurance and will keep me from doing the show and put me farther in debt. Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what does This Is Hell have to do to attract even more racist or even one racist (laughs) white supremacist misogynist far-right troll so we can make fun of them yeah nobody why are people not upset with this as much as they should be i mean from the get-go christians were really upset about the name of the show so what's going on the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of this is hell swag anything that you want that you can find at this is hell.com when you click on support including our new stuff which we revealed at last month's This is Hell 27th Anniversary Party, and you can pick up some if you drop by during tonight's office hours. Our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, which happens every Wednesday beginning at 6 in the evening at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood located at 2251 West Devon Avenue between Bell and Oakley. And as I've explained before... It's the bar, because people have told me they cannot find this bar. First of all, it's Carrie, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S. I don't know if people think I'm saying some other word, but apparently they can't spell Carrie's. It's the bar with the tuk-tuk out front that has Bob Dobbs' face painted on it. And there are new murals on Carrie's facade, one of a prowling cat and the other of a hookah-smoking caterpillar. Seriously, you cannot miss the place. If you do drop by tonight, you can check out This Is Art, the ongoing art show up here in the Second Story Studios Gallery, which will be closing on September 30th. There will be a closing party on September 30th, so put that in your calendar. I also think that might be the second annual 50th anniversary party for Carrie's Lounge. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can share it with us on our Patreon page or on Discord or just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Richard, and if I call you Dan at any point during today's show, please forgive me. That's a problem. <laughs> What's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff travels back to 39 years to revisit his visit to Morocco. Coming up, nice read, my friend. Coming up, we don't have to be friends to start or participate within a movement, and assuming we have to be, we'll end that movement before it even gets started. Richard shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell that goes live at 10 a.m. every Thursday morning. And following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell if we want to do more than only manufacture dissent if we want to start a movement to actually confront the systems of violence and cruelty that are destroying the planet and the people on it we must work together including with people frankly that we don't like here to help us understand why that is and what it means for movement making we are very happy to have on our show award-winning menominee organizer and writer Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort Is the Whole World Worth? She co-authored this essay with past guest Miriam Kaba, and not only is it featured in the new Boston Review issue on Solidarity, but it's also in their uh, book that they 
they share that they are co-authors of. Let This Radicalize You, Organizing and the Revolution of Reciprocal Care. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. So thank you so much. You know, often people have been telling me to get you on the show. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> so I'm so glad that I finally got you on the show. And it's not just like uh, listeners who send me stuff. I'll be talking to a friend. They're like, do you know Kelly Hayes? Like, it, it drives <laughs> me crazy. So I'm glad this is finally happening. You start by writing, organizing is not a process of ideological matchmaking. Most people's politics will not mirror our own. And even people who identify with us strongly on some points will often differ strongly on others. So this made me think of how on the right, beginning in the 1990s, rhinos or Republicans in name only were attacked for not adhering to and embracing every right wing position for not aligning exactly with the party platform or whose loyalty to the party uh, was questioned. Dinos, or Democrats in name only, was a term that actually began much earlier in like 1908, which surprised me. How can organizing together still allow for differing opinions? Why don't movements, why don't organizers need to demand loyalty and complete alignment with a movement's positions? Well, for starters, I would just say that that it doesn't work. <laughs> it's not how people actually function. And I think that a lot of us enter into movement spaces, whether we know it or not, um, looking for belonging. And that, you know, we don't necessarily recognize that as part of what's driving us into a space because we have other very real motivations, you know, like we want to stop a war or we want to end police violence. And all of that feels very front and center. But there is this underlying thing happening inside of us because we are so alienated under capitalism and under the individualist culture we're living in that we are looking to belong. And I think being in spaces where there is more of a recognition that we should treat each other with respect, that there is more of a recognition that the societal standards about the way our identities are recognized, about the way that our oppressions are or are not recognized, um, something about that makes us more demanding. It, 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 it makes us realize that we do get to ask for more, you know, and sometimes that asking for more can become sort of moralizing. Um, it can become sort of a social demand that we place upon everyone around us an expectation for affinity um, as opposed to figuring out who we can work with even if it's hard, even if they're challenging us, even if they're saying things that we don't really like. Um, figuring out where, where to draw the line, when to push back, when to leave someone room to grow, uh, when to be constructive about how we try to explain something instead of going on the defensive. Um, these aren't skills we're coming to the table with. You know, and a lot of the skills we are coming to the table with are pretty dysfunctional, right? Because the things we've had to do to navigate our lives and defend ourselves are not always great. You know, we, we have had to make the best of the skills that we've had to deploy to get by in a world that's really unfair to us. And so we're coming into these spaces and a lot of times we've got trauma responses ricocheting around the room and we're not always starting from a place of figuring out how to listen even when it's hard, and how to negotiate what we need from each other in order to fight for the cause versus what we want from each other in terms of the kind of belonging and recognition that we really do deserve 
but that isn't going to come from everyone and that isn't necessarily going to come easily even when we ultimately arrive there. And we come from, as you're pointing out, this world of individualism, this world of neoliberalism, which uh, makes the individual the most important thing in the world. Do you, if I would assume, as from what your response was, that you believe that that individualism, that constant focus on individualism, undermines our ability to form movements, to collaborate. But does it also... Uh, that the lack, does that also lead to a lack of belonging? Does that also lead to a desire for movement building? Can individualism, neoliberal individualism, actually fuel our desire to belong and collaborate? I mean, I think we're starving for connection and belonging because of the way this society is structured. I mean, if we look at, and I think the pandemic put this in stark relief, you know, when we were looking, we were also isolated in those early days of you can't go to restaurants, you can't go to bars. Um, so many things were shuttered. And then, you know, when we stopped to think about where do we get to gather and commune with people that most of those options had become commercial in most of our lives. And I think that the way that these things are broken down um, so that we are so isolated from one another, that yes, we absolutely have this sort of desperate drive in many cases, whether we recognize it in ourselves or not, for connection, but that we don't have the tools, we don't have the practice and being right in right relationship with one another to forge those bonds necessarily in a healthy way when the environment is challenging. You know, I think a lot of people look at organizing and in the beginning, they kind of think it's the work of sort of seeking out other people who get it, of assembling people with whom um, we can find easy agreement. And while absolutely um, giving people who are already where we're at who want to help things to do is a very important part of the work. Um, for some people, it seems like it stops there. It's like sending out search parties for the people who already have perfected politics or that small portion of people who are willing to take instruction on politics because most people, you're not going to approach them and say, your politics are bad, take these instead. Although that may happen every once in a while. Some people might be like, oh, I didn't know. Thank you. And then do the thing differently. But that's not how most people operate. It's not how most people learn. And so a lot of us um, were just not skilled up in building the kind of relationships that we need with other human beings in order to be constructive together. So you mentioned affinity earlier, and uh, in this in this idea of, that you were talking about about belonging, I have seen people show their desire for belonging. I have seen people who are you know might have libertarian or even neoliberal leanings, uh, you know, still strive to have that belonging, but it comes in the form of uh, this is just a stupid example, being a Cubs fan. You know, uh, so uh, what is the difference between affinity and that kind of belonging and the kind of belonging that we need and the tools that we use to be part of a movement? Well, I mean, I think affinity is definitely has its place within movements, right? I mean, we all we've all heard the term affinity group, you know, the people with whom we can most easily find common ground, people who share our values, um, folks that we feel really comfortable turning to in a crisis because we know we're going to be somewhere near the same page. I, I think we all need that. Um, I certainly have 
that kind of space within my community. And I tend to think about that as a sanctuary personally. Um, and we all need sanctuary. Uh, you know, the world is in crisis. We're living through an apocalypse. We absolutely need that in our lives. We're not wrong for looking for it. And also struggles are not sanctuaries. The larger movements that we're building within, I, we simply can't move through them with the same expectations that we have in those most comfortable spaces that we're able to sort of cultivate for ourselves. And so to me, it's it's about being able to make that distinction. There are spaces where my expectations of people are different. Um, in my own collective, for example, you know, uh, we have very tight-knit relationships. We have very similar values. And if something upsetting happens to me and I go and I recount it to these folks, I'm going to get a lot of support and a lot of similar reactions. And there aren't really going to be anyone saying, I don't understand why that was upsetting, unless for some reason I'm being reactive and someone's helping to set me straight. But out in like a larger group of folks, I might need to understand that I might walk into a room and recount something that someone said to me and there might be people there that don't understand why that was messed up or don't understand why I'm upset about it and I might might either need to just move past that or explain in a, in a constructive way that's not necessarily shutting them down or shutting down the relationship why this was upsetting to me why this is a hard thing um I don't think like our feelings are valid but we can't always expect our feelings to translate into um, other people's worldviews in ways that they can immediately understand. And I think that we, um, we lose our way sometimes in the expectation of affinity in places where what we need most is solidarity. What we need most is knowing that when my body is on the line, you're going to have my back when it's us against you know the forces that oppress us we are going to line up together and lock arms or whatever it is you know it's our expectations of each other need to make sense and they need to be specific to what is realistic for the group of people that we're dealing with so movement building it would seem would be un, it's one of the issue or obstacles it would have is the process of, you know, just preaching to the choir. So is movement building, is this kind of solidarity, uh, are these kind of struggles safe spaces? I don't really believe that safe spaces exist. Um, we can try to make spaces safer, and I think that's a, a worthy goal. But we are going to be uncomfortable. And if we're comfortable all the time, then we definitely aren't confronting the challenges that we need to confront in order to do this work. I find that fascinating. Is that conflict and discomfort necessary? Should it be intentionally pursued or is it something that spontaneously happens? Is a tense, contentious environment necessarily good or bad for movement building? I don't think anyone has to pursue it. I, I think it's quite inevitable. I think if we, <laughs> like, I think if we are expanding our numbers and building across communities in the ways that we need to, like we're going to encounter those tense moments. They're simply going to happen, and we need to skill build our way through, um, sort of adjusting and and learning together, and in figuring out what the priority is in a given moment. You also point out that the forces that oppress us may uh, compete and make war with one another. But when it comes to maintaining the order of capitalism and the hierarchy of white supremacy, the, 
Uh, they collaborate and work together based on their death-making and eliminationist shared interests. Oppressed people, on the other hand, often demand ideological alignment or even affinity when seeking to interrupt or upend structural violence. This tendency lends an advantage to the powerful that is not easily overcome. To you, what explains the seemingly inherent collaboration of the powerful while the oppressed insist on agreement and actually liking each other? Well, I think part of that has to do with the fact that systems maintain themselves. It's the primary function of any system to maintain itself so that ultimately when it comes down to whether or not they disagree with each other or dislike one another, people with the most power are always going to conspire to keep us in our place, to maintain their authority, to maintain their control. And they are going to put whatever difference they have to aside in order to keep that hierarchy in place. So is collaboration to enforce the status quo easier and not as big of an obstacle as what the oppressed have to go through because they have to think of a new system that uh, brings about structural change? I would definitely say it comes easier to them because their priorities get very simple very quickly when the system is truly threatened in some way. Whereas our work is much more of a construction project, right? And so people are out here trying to agree on what the blueprints look like or out here trying to building without blueprints. And <laughs> there are so many different visions for what an alternative to the system could look like and so many different ideas about what is an acceptable way to kind of create formations around getting there that yes, absolutely, our, our struggle is a much more difficult one and, and a much more creative one. And therefore, yes, it, we, we are faced with far greater challenges in that regard. So is power the outcome of collaboration? And conversely, is powerlessness, even oppression, the result of the oppressed not collaborating? Well, I wouldn't say it's as simple as um, powerlessness is, is the result of, of not collaborating. There, We have so many forces working against us, um, so many. But... I would say that absolutely we cannot build power if we are unable to collaborate. And, you know, I'm thinking about um, a book uh, Chris Begley wrote um, called The Next Apocalypse. And there's a chapter in that book called Who Survives and Why? And Chris has studied um, like previous apocalypses, basically the collapse of different civilizations, you know, as an archeologist, he's also um, a survivalist instructor. And so he has a particular perspective on these things. And so in this chapter where he talks about who survives an apocalypse and why, um, it was not what I was expecting at all. Um, I'm, I'm a Menominee uh, person, but I didn't grow up on the reservation. My father was removed along with many other children in 1950. And so I grew up in an urban environment. And ever since I realized that, you know, things are taking the turn that they are, the world is in great peril. It's troubled me a lot that I have a city Indian survival skills. <laughs> you know, I love air conditioning. I don't know how to, well, I didn't know until the past year or so how to make a fire. And um, Chris talks about in that chapter that, yes, I know you're all thinking you need these survivalist skills. And yeah, I'll talk about that. And the thing is, this, this stuff isn't hard. It's not hard to learn how to do a lot of these things that you need to do in a crisis. And they're also not the first determinants of who survives. In a major um, collapse situation, 
the first determinant of who survives is discernment. Who can tell good information from bad information? Who can tell good leadership from bad leadership? And the second is our ability to collaborate across difference because we literally cannot survive without working collaboratively in a crisis. And so if you think about, you know, in a major moment of collapse, let's say, you know, the power grid goes down, suddenly we have trouble getting things like food, um, our transit is disrupted, we need to be able to work with the people around us. And the people around us are usually not going to be in perfect ideological alignment with us. They may say things that offend us. They may have some bad ideas about things. So how do we negotiate that? How do we feel our way through that while holding each other in our humanity? That these are actually some of the most important survival skills that, that we have. And of course, that also translates to organizing. And of of course, that also translates to our ability to build power in, in any circumstance, because we literally can't survive without these skills. That's fascinating. And I'm going to go get the next Apocalypse by Chris Bagley immediately. <laughs> that sounds incredible. So you write, uh, put simply, we need more people. What do we mean by this? We are not talking about launching search parties to find an undiscovered army of people with already perfected politics with whom we will easily and naturally align. So what are the basics that we need to, that need to be uh, agreed upon, that we need to rally around? What are those basics? Well, I think in any space, you know, we need sort of an understanding of how we're going to treat each other. You know, I think community agreements are important. I think baseline expectations are important. And I think we need to be able to um, push back in constructive ways uh, when necessary, you know, in order to sort of maintain our self-respect, for starters, um, and also to to make people aware of boundaries, you know, because boundaries are important and we do get to have them. Um, I In the book, I talk about um, an incident that happened with a group that my collective worked with. Uh, we're kind of a specialized crew and for a number of years, a lot of what we did was working with folks who wanted to do direct actions that their group maybe needed some training for, whether that was a direct action 101 to do something kind of basic as safely as possible and creatively as possible, like maybe a sit-in or a march without a permit, or something much more elaborate, like a blockade that maybe involves equipment that the group doesn't know how to build and doesn't know how to deploy safely. So we would do anything from spending, you know, four hours with the group training to spending like all of our so-called spare time for weeks on end with the group training and rehearsing and rehearsing for them to deploy and do an action that is ultimately pretty dangerous. And there was one incident we talk about in the book where we were going into this space and it was a space filled with really kind of the kind of people I grew up with. Um, a lot of brown folks, a lot of folks with some varying levels of misogyny sort of happening. And as a crew of all women and trans folk, um, we knew that there might be some attitudes we might bump up against, particularly since we're standing in front of this group explaining things like, this is how we're gonna build this equipment that you're going to use. These are the tools we'll use. These are the tools the police will use to dismantle it. This is what that's going to be like. And we were kind of doing this initial introductory piece uh, for them to get a feel for us, for us to get a feel for them, to kind of feel out, is this collaboration going to work? 
is this the best fit? And we really wanted this. We really believed in what this group was doing, and we really wanted to work with them on supporting this action. And at the, at the end of this um, very exhaustive sort of presentation that we gave, I asked if there were any questions. And an older gentleman in the back of the room yelled out, yeah, where are the men? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> wow. And yeah, yeah. And I had a moment of pause, uh, as did my comrades beside me. And I, I could feel my own anger kind of welling up, and I could definitely feel theirs. And I knew that what we said next, you know, could kind of determine, like, the direction things took. And so I, I took a chance and I made a joke. I said, at home, making me dinner. <laughs> and a bunch of people in the room laughed, you know, it, it, it brought down the temperature. Um, and it also made a point, you know, um, without getting into it, without giving a speech about why that kind of misogyny is bad, it made the point that, no, we're not going to take that. You know, we we have expertise. We have things to offer. And, um, yeah, don't basically don't do that. And afterwards, you know, I debriefed with my team and we talked about it. I'm like, was that an OK way to handle that? Because, I mean, it's not exactly the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> we can be macho, too. But we all agreed, you know, it was it was a good enough way to handle an unacceptable moment because, it pushed back. It made the point that, hey, we're going to stick up for ourselves. Don't don't go there. And also, it didn't derail the solidarity that we were trying to forge with the people in that room who were ready to do it. And over the course of the, the weeks that we spent with these folks um, preparing for their action, I will say that some of the folks who had a skeptical attitude towards us, um, I really watched that melt away. And by the time we executed that action and those folks got out of jail, the level of mutual respect and admiration between our groups was so strong. And um, we wound up having this beautiful celebratory dinner together where our groups were toasting one another and celebrating one another. And, you know, we easily could have lost all of that, you know, if we had had what in some ways would have been a fair reaction to a moment of just ridiculous misogyny. And so I think to some degree, it's it's about that kind of thing. It's about figuring out how to pivot in moments when we're dealing with things we shouldn't have to deal with, with things that simply shouldn't exist in the room, but are going to, because we are all wading through all these bad isms all the time. They are all over us. They are all over our communities. And I don't just want to extend my solidarity to people who are where I am in the path of trying to get some of that muck off. I want to help and, and to be helped by people who are at varying stages of that process. And I want us to be there for each other in the pursuit of a livable world and fair housing and all the things that we deserve, whether or not we're in that moment of shared politics yet. But you also point out that we can build upon our expectations of such people and negotiate protocols around matters of respect. But the truth is, we will sometimes be uncomfortable or even offended. We will at times have to constructively critique people's behavior, simply allow them room to grow. There will be other times, of course, when we have to draw hard lines. But if we cannot organize beyond the bounds of our comfort zones, we will never build movements large enough to combat the forces 
that would destroy us. So does growing the size of the tent, if you will, necessarily diffuse the message of the movement's cause? If a stronger turnout is desired, must the the message make concessions and necessarily be, quote-unquote, weakened to accommodate more opinions? I think that, I mean, it really varies. And it's the, the, my, my feeling is that we're going to be uncomfortable as the tent gets bigger. And so that does mean compromise. And it does mean dealing with people, yeah, that sometimes we're just not going to like. And, and that bit about hard lines is important because hard lines do have to exist. Um, you know, if, that, if someone in that room, for example, instead of making that comment had used the N-word, about one of my comrades, that would have been a different moment. That wouldn't have been a joke to resolve this. That would have been, excuse me, let me explain why you don't get to use that language. And, you know, we would have had a talk and it would have been a lot harder in tone than simply making a joke. I I do believe, again, you have to have community agreements. You have to have baseline expectations of how people treat each other that are not as flexible as as some things. And, you know, this sounds a little wishy-washy and unclear. One of the critiques that somebody made of the book uh, that I did appreciate was that they wished that there had been more specificity around how to deal with people who have regressive ideas around things like gender and race. And I wish I could write that book for them too. <laughs> like that's that's a whole other book. That's, And I honestly don't know that it can be written because I think it's all so subjective. I think that we don't all have the same stretch zone kind of as we talk about in terms of, um, you know, where we're able to negotiate beyond the realm of comfort or easy agreement. And I don't think those expectations should always be the same across identity. Um, I can't tell someone like, oh, when someone says this thing, you have to be willing to give a little. It, it's going to be different depending on the context, the situation, and the person that the demand is being placed upon. Um, what I do know is that we have to be willing to understand, for one thing, the difference between not being safe and not being comfortable. I think there's been some conflation around those ideas in recent years. Um, we're going to be uncomfortable sometimes and understanding that that's part of the process. Does that dilute the larger message? It, it may feel that way sometimes, right? But the fact is, if what I want is something as big as universal health care, there are going to be people in that tent who have other ideas that I don't like. I mean, and, and maybe this is... Um, Like as a prison abolitionist, I may be more accustomed to this than some people, because if I only worked with other people who believed prisons would need to be abolished, I I would have a very limited pool of co-strugglers. The existence of prisons is is offensive to me, and it's very clear to me in my politics that we need to build towards a world without them. A lot of people aren't there yet, and those weren't my politics for a really long time. But I also happen to believe that part of how we get that world is universal health care. I don't think that world exists without us extending what mutual care looks like in our society far beyond what we have today. So when there are people who are have, have gotten that far in agreement with me, I need to figure out how to work with as many of those people as possible, even though sometimes some of them are going to have ideas about a whole lot of topics that are going to make me uneasy. I need to figure out as an organizer how to work with those folks. And by the way, that is also how I have seen prison abolition take hold in more and more people, which is that 
they have organized and worked alongside and thought alongside people who have my specific politics and over time, through the waging of struggle, come to share more and more of those views. I happen to believe that's where most transformation and people's politics actually takes place. It happens in the waging. But how much do people fear that kind of transformation or growth? Because, you know, it made me think about, you know, instability. People do not like instability. When your ideas of the world are challenged, that can be frightening to people. So how much is there a fear of transformation and growth that does become an obstacle to movement building? I think that we're all very attached to our ideas and we're all very attached to um, being right, you know, for one thing, but also being certain. I think many of us, if not most of us, are deeply uncomfortable with uncertainty. And um, I'm very interested in political psychology and have gotten even more interested about it during the pandemic when people who share my values were behaving in ways that I didn't understand early on. I started reading um, John Jost's work, um, A Theory of System Justification is a really great book. And he talks about how people need a sense of certainty. And he also talks about this in a book called Left and Right and how um, it is very difficult for most people to engage with uncertainty. And so we kind of, it's why people default to the status quo. It's also why we sort of latch on to our own ideas about things and try to keep them fixed. Because the idea of uncertainty is harder for most people to deal with than the inevitability of something bad is. It is easier for most people to latch on to an, assu an assumption that something bad is inevitable than to inhabit an uncertainty where maybe we can stop the bad thing and maybe we can't. So I think that our movements really have to engage with this. We have to engage with the fact that people are struggling around these notions of certainty and uncertainty, and they're struggling around notions of safety and belonging at all times. This is a constant grappling process that people are dealing with. And no, our movements cannot simply hand people, okay, here's your certainty. But I do think that we can help people engage with certainty and uncertainty in much more constructive ways, just as um, I can't hand someone safety, but I can help foster in concert with other people environments where people know that we are all acting in defense of one another. I think many of us know what it's like to be in the streets at a protest, and we are most assuredly not safe in those moments, but we know that a vast number of other people are looking out for us and care about what happens to us and will try to help us if we fall. And that most of our days, most of our time moving through the world, we don't walk around with that feeling, which is one of the reasons I believe that movements have the potential to hand us those experiences where we're in the middle of a movement moment and we have that sense that we're exactly where we're supposed to be, exactly where when we're supposed to be there with the people that we're supposed to be with. That's what movements can give us at our best, at that sense of total engagement. And I think that that's how we begin to overcome some of these other struggles around the constant grappling for certainty, constant grappling for safety and belonging. These are complex things, and I think we have to think of them as part of 
the movement infrastructure and part of what we're building in ways that we're not used to because we're very task focused in movement work and, and with good reason. We have a lot of work to do, but we also have to think about the infrastructure that addresses these feelings. And Aaron Goggins of the Wild Seed Society addressed this really powerfully, really powerfully in the last episode of Movement Memos, kind of talking about what it can look like to try to build that infrastructure and try to build that sense of interdependence, right? That can help get around some of the feelings that we have about power over and power under that, you know, that it's easy to default to across the board because that's what capitalism and individualism foster in us. We are speaking with award-winning Menominee organizer and writer Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort is the World Worth? Movement Building Requires a Culture of Listening, Not Mastery of the Right Language. The essay was co-authored by a past guest here on This Is Hell, Mariam Kaba, and is featured in the new Boston Review issue on Solidarity. It's also in their book that they co-authored, Let This Radicalize You, Organizing and the Revolution of Reciprocal Care. Kelly is the co-host of Truthout's podcast, Movement Memos, and a contributing writer at Truthout. You can find out more about Movement Memos at Kelly's website, kellyhayes.org, and please support Kelly's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell you write this will not come easily the movements that we need what we need to do to challenge to make build movements because white supremacy and classism have forced many wedges between our communities is this classism one way is there a class war being waged by the wealthy against the poor by the powerful against the oppressed and not the other way around and do the oppressed need to simply co-opt that kind of classism that the powerful are employing against the oppressed? I mean, it's it's very clear to me that uh, class war is being waged very effectively and consistently, um, you know, by the ruling class. And yes, absolutely, we need to wage the class war from below um, much more effectively. And there are people who I believe are, are building those kind of bonds and waging that kind of struggle, that that exists. Um, you know, we have tenant organizing is very powerful. I think unions are the obvious go-to, labor unions. But I, I also see this in a lot of different structure-based organizing that goes on. Um, and also in some of the community, smaller community work that happens. Um, you know, P.O. Box Collective is a great example in my area of a group of folks who have come together to foster a space that really supports a lot of different organizing that is assisting migrant folks, that is helping to feed folks who need assistance on that level, and hoping helping to support um, you know folks who are organizing for trans liberation. I think that we need to be multifaceted in that way in our work. Um, you know, our struggles are united in ways that we don't always recognize, but our enemies are the same. They really are the same. And so absolutely we need more class unity. And we also need to recognize the complexity inherent in that and not default to class reductionism and not sort of discount the importance of the struggles that particular communities are dealing with in the context of just saying, you know, it's about class, which unfortunately some folks do. Um, understanding the class struggle means understanding how the ruling class um, uses things like gender identity, uses things like race 
in order in order to animate its violence. When movements do arise and they get national establishment media press attention, like Occupy Wall Street did, the establishment corporate media will insist on a movement, A, providing a leader, B, a set of demands. They want to be provided with that new set of politics the movement is embracing to discourage messy journeys, as you call them. So, However, as organizers, activists, historians, and many other guests have pointed out on the show, a movement or even a revolution is, as you say, a messy journey. It does not come with instructions and a written down how-to step-by-step plan that is then thoroughly adhered to. Instead, the movement, like the people within it, will experience transformation as they grow. For organizers, is the mission not to impose a new set of politics, not to have all the answers, but to create an environment and a movement that allows for political transformation to grow? How uncertain is the organizer of the direction the work will take them? I think it's important to bring an analysis to the table, but I think that no matter you know how many books we've read or how sharpened our analysis um, may be, I think it's deeply important to, you know, not to resort to sort of the banking model of trying to educate other people, of trying to deposit our ideas in their head. I think we need to take kind of a Frarian approach, you know, to learning alongside, thinking alongside other people, getting their ideas about the concepts that we're tackling together. And yes, sharing the analysis that we have, but allowing people to sort of see what they think of it, to feel it out, to grow with it, to maybe affect our analysis and help shape shift the way that we view things. Um, the, the way I think now is so different, right, from the analysis that I had, you know, just 10 years ago. And I owe that to my co-strugglers. I owe that to the process of learning and thinking alongside and being willing to, to move you know, as people presented ideas that I was not familiar with or that I hadn't tried before or that maybe my old way of doing things had been holding me back from or maybe my fear of other people and the ways that they had hurt me or might hurt me again had been holding me back from trying or recognizing or giving a chance. I think that having an analysis is is deeply important, but we don't come into movement spaces to sort of inflict our analysis on other people or to project it onto the room and now everyone's saved, like we're bringing them to Christ or something. It's about learning and thinking alongside. And that's how we build relationships. People want to get to know and to fight alongside people who value their ideas, who take them seriously, not people who see them as canvases to paint ideas on or batteries to drain, but as people who want to, who people who hold them in their humanity and people who they can hold in their humanity as we sort of forge a journey together. And you point out that for organizer and scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore, it was her time in Alcoholics Anonymous that helped her transform her practice of listening. You then quote her telling you and your co-author, Miriam Kaba, the main thing that I learned, especially in the first couple years that I was going to meetings, was the beauty of the rule against crosstalk. It was the best thing that ever happened to me that I couldn't say anything to anybody. I had to listen and I had to learn to listen. She had to learn to listen. What is it about our society that doesn't allow us, that becomes an obstacle to what she calls deep listening? 
Well, for one thing, I really respected what Ruthie said in that conversation about being a know-it-all and also um, wanting to know everything and how these things can sometimes be at odds because we're trying to prove what we know and also wanting to hear and understand at the same time. And I think part of this goes back to how change happens in the waging. Um, you know, my father was also in Alcoholics Anonymous and um, after he passed, um, a number of people, I, I can't count how many people came up to me at his memorial service and talked to me about how my father basically saved their lives by extending solidarity when they needed it. And um, during when he was alive, he would talk to me about what he got out of AA. Uh, he, he would never, of course, tell me these other people's stories, except for this one time when he mentioned that there was a trans woman in AA and in his fellowship and that it transformed his politics. And he knows me, right? So he's, it's, this isn't the first time he's heard some of these ideas. And, you know, it, most people who talked to him about trans politics after that would have assumed that it was my influence, uh, that he was, you know, sort of mouthing. But it was really the product of listening to this woman and trying to figure out what he could do to help her stay sober, because that was the collective goal. And that sort of shut up and listen practice that Ruthie was talking about and that shared purpose got him to tune in in a way that he never really had before to understanding what it was like to be this woman moving through the world. And he told me that, you know, in AA, a lot of us talk about all the harm we caused and how we can never drink again because we caused all this harm to all these people that we care about. He's like, and listening to this woman, I was aware that she had caused so much harm to herself because people like me weren't making space for her in the world, weren't recognizing her, weren't extending some warmth and some understanding and realizing how little that really is to ask if it could help save someone's life. It could help make the world a livable joyful place for someone. And so I think to really hear each other and to really think about what would it mean to extend this person's solidarity, most of our society doesn't prepare people to do that. And I think that, you know, obviously there's a big difference between AA and, you know, going to a meeting about how do we get fair housing in our neighborhood, but I think there's a very instructive lesson there about what it means to listen to other people, really listen to their experience, no matter how much it differs from your own, and figure out what it means to extend solidarity to them, what it means to extend the assistance that you might have to offer to help make the shared goal something that they can realize so that they could thrive and that so we could all survive together. I missed my button. You write a uh, group culture that helps participants build their listening skills is an important component of successful organizing. Political education can create opportunities for people to practice listen, listening to one another without interruption and interacting meaningfully with what others have contributed. In organizing, are listening skills more important than speaking skills? And does one, in your experience, has one affected the other? I think that both are pretty important, but I think it's easier to learn something like facilitation or canvassing and probably easier to um, teach those skills than it is to teach people to listen. I think that um, 
I think like Miriam said recently something about how adults are so afraid of losing face all the time. And it's so important to understand this. And I think this is absolutely true. And I think so many of us have walked through life getting kicked around so many times by the system, by our bosses, by ever whoever was bullying us in whatever context. Our guard is all the way up. And so we engage in conversations from this really defensive place of, you know, bracing ourselves for the next hit or thinking up our comeback before the other person is even done talking. And it is so much more difficult, in my opinion, to unlearn those practices than it is to learn how to express something. I think all of it is, is deeply, deeply important and we need all of it. And also facilitation is an undervalued and undertaught skill. But listening, I would say, is even more undervalued. And there's definitely um, some misogyny embedded in that, right? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard men in particular in movement spaces talk about how we don't have time to talk about their feelings or we're not gonna sit around and talk about our feelings. And it's like, well, I understand that we don't wanna derail everything we're doing for the sake of what um, Ali Wayne calls like emotional downloading in the middle of a meeting. But if we don't make some space, right, to engage with what people are feeling and why, we are going to not have trust. We are not going to have the kind of bonds of communication that we need, and we're not gonna build anything that lasts. So we actually really do need to be able to hear each other and figure out how to engage constructively with what people are feeling. And uh, hat tip to Ali Wayne, by the way. That's <laughs> great to hear him referred to. Uh, so uh, one last question for you, Kelly. We have been speaking with organizer, writer, Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote with Miriam Kaba the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort is the Whole World Worth?, which is featured in their collaborative book, Let This Radicalize You, Organizing in the Revolution of Reciprocal Care, as well as in the new Boston Review issue on solidarity. Kelly is the host of the Truth Out podcast, Movement Memos. Find, find out more about Movement Memos at Kelly's website, kellyhayes.org. Follow her on Twitter, Twitter. Twitter at Ms. Kelly M. Hayes and definitely support Kelly's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Kelly Hayes. I almost said this is hell. I won't do that again. One last question for you, <laughs> Kelly. Uh, and uh, our final question, as always, is the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that platforms like Twitter have helped facilitate tremendous accomplishments in movement work. But they have also created an arena for political performance and critique that is often divorced from relationship building or strategic aims. For many people, social media is not an organizing tool, but a realm of political performance and spectatorship. Now, back during the Arab Spring, we were told that that would have never happened if it wasn't for you know, we got to praise Google for this. We have to praise all the social media platforms for this. This would have never happened if it wasn't for social media. So does social media reward performance and spectatorship to the point of becoming an obstacle to any collaboration or collective work? Does it further individualize us and make us even more alone despite being connected to everyone? Is social media, and it's a terrible binary, so I want to apologize, good or bad for movement building? Well, I think we need to start from a place of acknowledging that sort of the lauding of these platforms was always uh, misplaced, right? 
Um, these platforms weren't created to facilitate liberation. We should applaud the ways in which people have figured out how to exploit them towards those ends in various moments, um, which we have seen and which I've experienced in my own work. Um, Miriam and I have gotten a lot of people out of cages that we never would have been able to if not for the fundraising capacity and reach that we found on Twitter to tell these stories. Um, you know, we have campaigns like Free Brescia that helped get Brescia Meadows out of jail as a young person when she might have spent the rest of her life in prison. There, there are countless examples and we should applaud the organizing and the collaboration that made those things possible, the creativity. And we should also recognize that these, these platforms were never created for that purpose. And that in fact, we have seen over time that when we do make gains, they figure out ways to claw back that progress. Um, if we think about the way that trending items used to be visible on the um, on the, like the page of the main page of Twitter, so if you're scrolling through your feed, trending items used to be right there next to your feed, and that was how we got so many people informed about Brisha's case. We got free Brisha to trend nationally, and so suddenly all these people are asking, "Who is Brisha?" And then when they hear the story, they're like, oh my God, we have to get that child out of jail. Um, so what did they do? They changed it so that to see which spending, you actually have to go out of your way, right? And so that the topics that you see are actually now determined by an algorithm that is trying to direct your attention to, for whatever reason, the system thinks you should be looking at. Um, these, like, these aren't mechanisms of liberation. They're like anything else that is made for profit that we may be able to exploit it in some circumstances, and also the ends that it is facilitating by design are completely different and are at times going to work against us in very real ways, such as rewarding the performance of outrage above substance, you know, above what might necessarily be useful to us as people who are trying to solve problems or build relationships. And so I think that we need to recognize what is useful and, and take what we can and also recognize that this was never for us and that the strength of our movements is always going to be into entering spaces and strategizing to do the work that we can there without fetishizing these things that don't belong to us. Kelly, this has been such an enjoyable conversation. I only have 35 more questions for you, so we could, <laughs> we could be doing this for another couple of hours. So thank you so much for being on. The biggest mistake that anybody ever made was giving us your contact information. So we're going to be annoying <laughs> you for the rest of your life. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show. Thank you so much. This has really been a brilliant conversation and a great follow-up, by the way, to our conversation on Monday with Sharice Morris. I ended that conversation, by the way, the question from hell I had for her was in, I get a weekly newspaper and from rural Northern Michigan, from a very Trump County, uh, that two thirds of a vote in 2016 and 2020 went to Trump. They would never say they engage in mutual aid, but certainly during the worst part of the pandemic, the early years of the pandemic, they were doing, you know, charitable drives, charitable food drives for each other, often through groups like Rotary Club or churches. And so I asked Sharice, uh, do you think these kinds of groups are vulnerable to the concept of having a different type of law enforcement, if you will, a, 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 you know, reformative justice or these alternatives to policing because these same the same county votes against tax hikes that fund the police while they go out and 
expressed that they are against defunding the police. Do you think that in a conservative situation like that, where you have a Trumper county, where you have a county that doesn't even maybe know what the words neoliberalism or mutual aid mean, do you think that that, their focus on the bottom line, on taxes, do you think that that makes them susceptible to considering other forms of policing if they are more cost-effective, things that are more focused on communal care? You know, I am not really an expert in uh, in reaching, reaching conservative folks. Right. Um, I do know that in most communities, um, my politics are much farther to the left <laughs> than the average person that I'm going to approach. Sure. And so I find that what makes the most sense to me, you know, sometimes people ask me about like how you talked about abolition to people who, you know, think are very deeply attached to the carceral state. And I always say that, you know, we start by talking about people's hearts, desires and what they want for their community. And I think there are a lot of contexts in which we wouldn't expect people to be open to some of our ideas where when we really start talking about what they want and what they need for their communities and what kind of policies would get them there, that they wind up being open to actual policies that are much closer to what we want and the world that we want. And so I I wouldn't be surprised um, if there were openings there for folks that if they got into conversations with people that were divorced from some of the labeling, but just getting down to brass tacks, what's happening to you and the people around you? What do you want to have happen? That sure, there's a potential for people to realize that none of this is working for me. And what I want is actually something really radically different. Kelly, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm sorry that I threw in another question from you. Before you <laughs> no worries. Find out thank more. you for having yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> show, uh, show your support for Kelly Hayes, please, at patreon.com slash Kelly Hayes. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You have a great day. All right. Take care. I have to pause here a little bit because of the tagline I'm about to read. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I just wanted to make sure Kelly wasn't on the line. So did... Kelly, blow your mind. Did you learn something new to add to your ideas, uh, Im- improve upon them when it comes to organizing and the need to be friends and pals with everybody who you organize with? If you did learn, then please support This Is Hell, completely listener-supported hell, by subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. at patreon.com slash thisishell, or just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and do we have any new answers from any of our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what does This Is Hell have to do to attract more racist, white, supremacist, (laughs) misogynist, far-right trolls so we can make fun of them? (laughs) And I understand they are really committed to Patreon. Did um, did you do any uh, answers from Discord? No, we did not. We have a couple from there. I believe we don't have any... New ones otherwise? Otherwise, okay. anywhere else. I can't figure out Twitter. and Yeah, I, I couldn't know. figure that out either. There's a message there that you can't see. I, you know, yeah, that is, uh, it's beyond me. <laughs> but, so whatever. <laughs> it's beyond me too. No, hold on, I lost. Uh... So you have a couple of uh, answers over on Twitter and Richard's. No, it's Discord. Discord, sorry. Oh, here we go. Um, 
Tim G. Stare into a dark bathroom mirror and repeat, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Tucker Carlson. <laughs> I like your dramatic reading of that. Very nice. And uh, Rudolph answers, uh, sorry, I haven't, I haven't pre-read this. That's okay. I just <laughs> you just got over there. I have, a, I have a guaranteed method, but it will require a lock of Donald Trump's hair, <laughs> freshly hairsprayed, a single quaalude, and the livers of 108 gay frogs, <laughs> and it won't be ready until seven moons from now. <laughs> wow. Udarov coming in onto the wire there. Very good. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. Well, you'll win whatever piece of This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Richard, what is Jeff up to during this week's Moment of Truth, which is coming up in just a couple minutes? Jeff is traveling back 39 years to revisit his visit to Morocco. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt again, subscribe to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon, it makes sense that a show called This Is Hell can at times be freaking depressing. So it should make equal sense that doing the research and the writing for the show is also really depressing, especially when you are someone like me who already suffers from depression. But while I'm not on the air and very depressed most of the week, I find and get this, I find inspiration from actually doing the show, being on air and talking with our very inspiring guests like Kelly Hayes today. Go figure. Also on Patreon, we're playing a 20-year-old interview after being inspired by a conversation that we had uh, with uh, that I had with uh, Will Ippen on the show about that stupid website, buildsubmarines.com, which is in the midst of a huge media blitz. Pardon the pun. So we're playing an interview, and this is kind of weird, uh, from way back 20 years ago in 2003, an interview we did with Kevin Baker, who had just written the Harper's cover story. Keep that in mind. Harper's cover story. We're in the Army now. The GOP's plan to militarize our culture that appeared in the October 2003 issue of Harper's Magazine. So at the time, Kevin was writing the monthly in the news column for the really conservative American Heritage Magazine. So we're playing an interview that we did, and we used to do this on a somewhat regular basis, talking to people from conservative media outlets who had opinions that kind of were opposed to the conservatism of that time. So tune in to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. But the only way, again, that you can hear any of that is, again, by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from Al, if there are any left. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Memories of Morocco. Hey, everyone okay out there? 
Have you laid in a supply of necessities just in case of a disaster? All of us here in LA have earthquake bags filled with things that might be in short supply in an emergency. Fresh water, water purifiers, first aid kit, matches, dry goods, abortion rights, voting rights, police accountability. The recent earthquake in Morocco, which killed about 3,000 by current count as of this writing, brought all this to mind. Warzazat City, if you can call it a city, is the capital of Warzazat province in Morocco. The province is part of the area that most suffered destruction from the earthquake, though less so than neighboring Al-Hauz province, in which the epicenter in the high Atlas Mountains was located. I spent about a month in Warzazat 34 years ago. These are some memories. Preceding that, I enjoyed my setup in Marrakesh, a rundown shack on the rooftop of a two-story apartment building off Marrakesh's Gemma Elfna, run by a matriarch named Mina, which turned out to be a common name for Moroccan matriarchs. But a few annoying run-ins with locals, cops, and worst of all, tourists, led me to seek a less trafficked home base. This was one of those weird years when the Hijri calendar landed the beginning of Ramadan in early April. So I'd already endured a week and a half of the Islamic holy month and its effects on Moroccan psyches. Laborers in Marrakesh abstained from food and water from sunup to sundown and from sex, alcohol, and tobacco all month, all around the clock. Not a recipe for a contented working class in a busy city. I decided to go southwest over the High Atlas mountain range into the Sahara to Warzazat. I was told it was far less touristed there and very quiet. In Warzazat, the pace of life was supposed to be much more relaxed. Farmers walked almost imperceptibly slowly as they tended their fields. Most of the other businesses in town took place out of the sun, in shops, cafes, or administrative offices. It was the year 1989. I arrived in Warzazat in mid-April. When I got to town, I was immediately greeted by a friendly man who wanted to know where I was from, where I was staying, what was my good name, and what I planned to do there. I had often been greeted this way, and to my surprise, it was rarely because anyone had something they wanted to sell me. They might, of course, have a relationship with a small hotel or restaurant, possibly getting a 30% kickback, but the genuine curiosity stemmed from their relationship with the entire rest of the community. Who is this stranger? We'll be gossiping about him. Is he polite? Is he clean? Is he friendly? Is he a cheapskate? We ended up sharing a leisurely round of mint tea in his carpet shop, agreeing in the end that we would be friends with no business, as I would neither be lugging nor shipping any carpets, no matter how beautiful. My entire budget for what turned into a two-month stay in the Maghreb and Spain, this was 1989, remember, was about $2,300. On Ramadan, one fasts from the rising of the sun until it sets, though Morocco's tourist destination status ensured that most eateries would be open during the day. I learned how to count in Moroccan Arabic. Classical Arabic, closer to what they speak in Egypt, uses a different word for the number two. 
So I could understand when the shopkeepers discussed the prices they planned to charge for things, what the Moroccans themselves were paying, and target my bargaining thus informed. Living and traveling more amongst the people than most tourists due to my low budget, I was subject to hostile looks and sometimes even a sarcastic bon appetit when caught breaking the fast before sundown. Not wishing to offend, I kept any eating or drinking to my room when I had one and often fasted the whole day like a regular Muslim. After sundown, the custom was to have a bowl of soup called harira made with lamb broth, chickpeas, lentils, and aromatic spices. In Warzazat, I stayed in a small room in a two-story building I suppose might be called a hotel, though amenities were minimal. It was off the main road through town, but behind it was a small, nameless, at least to me, restaurant. The harira there was better than I'd had anywhere else. One evening I was seated at a table by myself. A man at the table next to mine had an artificial leg plated with the most elaborately embossed or engraved steel I'd ever seen used for such a purpose. In my memory, he also had a leather eye patch with a stitching of wheat-colored thread around the perimeter just a couple millimeters in from the edge. He was bearded, as I was. When we were each served our soup, he reached over and handed me a couple of dates. This wasn't the first time I'd had a stranger share fruit with me for iftar. It happened at bus stops, on buses, in parks, any public space. I also found myself in conversation with random Arabs and Berbers. Many conversations were in French, which I spoke only haltingly, though by the end of a month I seemed to have become conversationally comprehensible. But just as frequently I was spoken to by an elderly person in Arabic or some Berber dialect without any care that I couldn't understand what I was being informed or questioned about. Sometimes my interlocutor and I resorted to improvisational sign language. Everybody was always in everybody else's business. If an argument broke out between two people, everyone within earshot was instantly part of it. At one point in my travels, I companioned with an ethnological linguist named Paul Castella from Saint-Étienne, France, who had a theory that the communal participation had to do with the Islamic metaphor that we all live inside God, rather than in Christian epistemology, where a piece of God lives in each of us. We met students who attended the high school, the Grand Lycée, there in Warzazat, and they introduced me to their teacher, whom I was told wanted to discuss Freud and Pasolini with me, and of course my professor friend Paul. Eventually, we learned the teacher's curriculum was part of the dramaturgy for the Lycée's student production of La Machine Infernale, Jean Cocteau's retelling of the story of Oedipus the King. On opening night of the performance, the theater was packed. Paul and I were lucky to get seats. They were in the very back row, up against the windows through which the overflow audience who couldn't get seats inside watched, squatting on the windowsill or hanging onto the window frames. This was clearly the hottest ticket in the Northwest Sahara's administrative hub. Audience members were vocal, shouting out comments, a wisecrack now and then, to which an actor sliding out of character would briefly retort. 
In general, I was able to follow the story. It helped that I'd read Sophocles' version and seen Pasolini's, too, and that it had long ago been injected into the Western theatrical bloodstream. What Cocteau brought to it was out of my reach, except where his stylistic sense influenced the mise-en-scene, I guess. I visited Cosbas and donkey markets, and got as far into the Zahara as the desert town of Merzouga, close to the northern border of Algeria. On a trip to the Todra Gorge, I saw an unfinished shell of an apartment building that was named for President Jimmy Carter, who saw to it that U.S. funds were directed to that structure and other housing for the Moroccan people. Reagan, no doubt, put a stop to that project. Now, as the death count from the earthquake grows, I remember the people who were so friendly to me, despite my being a touristic disappointment. Many of the outer walls of the buildings and some entire homes were made of the Northwest Sahara's pinkish mud fortified with fibers and sticks. Some buildings, I remember, including the one out of which the restaurant operated where the man with the embossed metal leg shared his dates with me, I imagine did not fare well in the quake. The Kasbah, just south of town, was hundreds of years old and made mostly of earth, baked under centuries of sun. Nothing lasts forever, but things I'd assumed were made to last, like a desert fort or the right to an abortion, are crumbling in these latter days, as if the world is sweeping the vulnerable away with more malice than usual. In any case, my heart is with the herb growers, rug makers, shopkeepers, cooks, bus drivers, innkeepers, ditch diggers, construction workers, all the people of Morocco, as this tragedy washes over them, the way events in history always have over all of us. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! So, as you know, I'm a very religious man, and I was yesterday buying lottery tickets because of my faith. So, as I'm in line to get uh, lottery tickets, the Desi man next to me, who is also in line, the next person to be in line, he said something, and I couldn't, like, wrap around my mind around exactly what he said, but what he did say was, I asked him, I was like, a beautiful day outside, huh? Because it was raining horribly and he said every day is beautiful when we all live inside god oh wow and so i was like when you said that i was like oh my god that's <laughs> what that guy was trying to say i was like i couldn't i, I couldn't trans my brain couldn't translate it i just done a 90 minute radio show i'd been yes, up i since. understand yeah. and the guy who the guy who offered that witticism or whatever advice, right. knowledge uh paul castella he he's di he de he died a while ago of cancer but uh he was a professor you know so he was he traveled to egypt he'd been all over the middle east studying arabic and studying muslim cultures and so he had some insight but it's really true that everywhere i went everyone knew what everyone else was doing they were curious about everyone else they helped other people it was uh, you know, it was uh, it's a much more public public space than I think we in the United States, where everything's getting privatized, are anywhere near used to. Yeah, but you know, God proved that He hates Morocco. So, well, God hates everyone. Let's face it. <laughs>
<laughs> He's got a lot of issues. All right, Jeffy, until next time. What? There's going to be a next time? There is, I promise. Okay, hey, when you, when's your when's your uh, dental ah, well, stuff? I'll tell you. I'm, it, it's, it's not quite confirmed yet. i got to make my appointment. So. Don't do it. <laughs> Pull it yourself. <laughs> yeah, wisdom, too. <laughs> All right, stay beautiful. You too. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Richard, do we have any new answers to this week's question from Hell? I'm doubting it seriously. We do not. So uh, my favorite answers this week were uh, to the question from Hell. What was it again? (laughs) I can't remember. What do we have to do to attract more racist white supremacist (laughs) and misogynist far-right trolls so we can make fun of them? So Neil C. said... Add dog dog whistles to your merch, (laughs) to which John B. responded, boom. Uh, I did like Rudolph on uh, Discord saying, I have a guaranteed method, but it will require a lock of Donald Trump's hair, freshly hairsprayed, a single quaalude, and the livers of 108 gay frogs, and it won't be ready until seven uh, new moons from now. I also like Nick saying, replace bitter, blind, and broke with white male and (laughs) proud. That's really good. Joanne saying, set up shop in Kankakee. Those are spectacular. Uh, Julie M saying, casually assert, unmarried childless women are the happiest Americans. And uh, yeah, I think those are my favorites so far. Any of those really? Oh, there's one more. Anthony C said, replace Chuck with Jody Whitaker. Now, Will nor I knew what that meant yesterday. So Anthony replied, explaining, I'm sorry, I'm making a bad Doctor Who reference. The Doctor regenerated into a woman, and all of the misogynists came out of the woodwork. I'm not a Doctor Who fan, but that sounds spectacular. So any of those really stick out to you, Richard? Uh, The one about replacing... Bitter, blind, broke with white, male, and proud. That does sound great. So, Nick P., you are the winner of this week's question from Al. All you have to do is tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. Send us an email, and we'll put it in the mail to you as soon as possible. Uh, So that makes this week's winner Nick P., Thank you very much. And my answer to this week's question from Hell, what does This Is Hell have to do to attract more racist trolls? Well, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. A very, very public, online, streamed everywhere, Confederate flag burning ceremony. Thanks to everyone who sent in your answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, Richard, who are our guests booked for next week? Next week, we have Kimberly Crenshaw returning to This Is Hell to discuss her new book, Pound Sign, or hashtag Say Her Name. (laughs) Black women's stories of police violence and public silence. Kimberly is a professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School and a leading authority in the area of civil rights. Do we have a date for that? Uh, That's going to be on Tuesday. Uh, She's been on the show in the past. You can find our past interview with uh, Kimberly at our website when you just search on her last name, Crenshaw, C-R-E-N-S-H-I-E-W. She is the person who came up with the idea of intersectionality. We also just now uh, booked a guest for Wednesday. That will be Intercept reporter Alice Sperry. She's going to be on to discuss an article that will not be posted 
until next week, until Tuesday. In her writing, Alice reports on the challenges facing survivors of sexual violence by Russian troops and how they are exacerbated by Ukraine's treatment of suspected collaborators, including new harsh collaboration uh, legislation, which bars Ukrainians from sharing information with enemies of the state. So that's what's happening next week so far. We'll have one more guest confirmed for Monday in the next couple of days or 24 hours and, or two hours. I'm really not too sure. But as soon as we do, we will be posting that online at all of our social media platforms as well. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll be explaining how, for me, This Is Hell is both depressing and inspiring. And we're playing a 20-year-old interview with somebody from a conservative media outlet about the increasing militaristic culture in the United States. This is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet. That's really a drinking thing. They're happening tonight, Wednesday, beginning around 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. So I hope to see you all there. And if you do drop by, I'll take you up here and show you the uh, This Is Art art show that's still taking place with a closing uh, party happening on September 30th. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing I Am Your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host Chuck Mertz, podcast host, live stream host Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>